Good morning. It's great for us to be back here, even though I think every year now we've been spending our summer vacation up in northern United States, enjoying the cold. And I'm not sure if it's, you know, God's sense of humor or not, but every time we travel, not every time, that would be, a, that would be not the truth, but quite often we, we travel, we seem to pick record-breaking snowstorms or ice storms to travel through. And I think it's God's way of reminding us where we come from. I've been thinking a lot about inheritances lately, and I suppose in part because we just became grandparents. Uh, we had our first two grandchildren born in August. That's Benjamin with the, in the blue and Allison in the red. They're the children of Seth, our oldest son, who's in St. Louis. Um, all the rest of our sons are single, so just in case you have a daughter who's... <laughs> Dan is in San Diego. He's a, a resident in uh, Otolaryngology with the U.S. Navy. So if you have children out in San Diego. And then John is just graduating, finishing from Hope College, um, this May in computer science. And then John, Peter, who's still with us. In part, I think it's, you know, having children. And we all through our lives, we prayed for our children, that they would grow up to love God with all their heart, soul, and mind and strength, that they would have the pursuit of God as their highest priority. And then you start praying for your grandchildren, and you start thinking, you hope that that faith continues on in your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren. And perhaps it's in part because I've been thinking about um, my parents. My father died last year. Denny's parents have both passed away. But as you become aware of your, you think more and more about your parents and how they prayed for you, because both Denny and I were blessed to have uh, Christian parents and our grandparents who also prayed for us. And then in my family tree, my great-grandfather came over from the Netherlands to seek a place where he could go to school and he could worship in a church that he felt was conservative, as many people who came out of the Octahook did. And so that, to think of all those generations going back who were praying for their children and their children. Also, I think whenever we come back to Wyzetta, we think in terms of the heritage, the inheritance that we have in the churches that we grow up in. Denny and I, in 1980 which sadly is becoming, even before many of you were born, I suppose, um, came to Wyzetta. And we came to Wyzetta as a result of a friend who was going to graduate school with me, who was being ministered to by Mac Peterson. And all the different people that had had an impact on our life here in Wyzetta. And eventually, um, our life took a direction that we hadn't planned when we came here. We wound up um, being invited by Dave and Gina Stavros to be missionaries to Peru. When they gave the invitation, we said, uh, no, thank you. God's leading us in other directions, but we'll pray about it. And as a result of praying about it, we wound up being in Peru. And uh, we always felt the church sent us off to Peru so eagerly because they were, wanted to support our ministry and not because they wanted to be rid of us. But being in Peru has been a tremendous blessing. But when I was thinking about in terms of Wyzetta, what a tremendous heritage as well it is to belong to a church that have people that live their life out in the church as part of this communion of families that they stick together in the good times and the bad times and they're there to support each other, they know each other. 
And you, when you think in terms of the impact that Waiseta has had, not just on people being sent out like the Johnsons, that, that's up there as an advertisement, you know, for the Johnsons going out in case you want to raise support and send them down quickly. We're looking to forward to having them come down. But things like having the commissioning, or not the commission, but praying for the weavers going back to Istanbul. When you think of all the missionaries that have come out, but not, not just missionaries, the people in Waiseta that have an impact in their community, the place where they work, that live out their faith, and that heritage that that has both for their own families, but also for the people that they work with. Also, the next slide shows a picture of people that we work with. They're all smiling, but they have a not-so-delightful inheritance. And that, I think, is perhaps the thing that's been causing me most to think about this in the last couple years. And that next picture that follows after this slide, those are formed part of a short-term team, from both Lavinia, the church where Danny and I have been serving for almost 20 years in Peru, and then Los Pilares, a church in a poor section of uh, Lima where we began to serve in, in March, a church that was facing uh, a number of problems, a church that the National Association was talking about perhaps, perhaps closing down or at least ending the ministry of the uh, senior pastor um, in the next couple of years if things didn't turn around. And so they asked us if we would work with them and and that's been a tremendous challenge for us and also a blessing for us as God always seems to, in our case, we always feel that, you know, that Psalm 16 talks about the boundary lines falling for us in pleasant places. And even when we go to a church that people say, well, this is a very tough, difficult church, we go there and, you know, our experience is that it's an incredibly loving church. It has problems. But what I want to point out is this, is the church where we're at now has got the impact of having had generations and generations of people that have not lived their life out according to biblical principles. And the impact that that has when you don't have the inheritance of a family that tries to live their life according to the principles that God's established. And in this picture, this includes not only people from the church that were working at Los Pilares, but some people from Lavinia. Um, not all the stories can I tell you in detail because they're not public stories, but apart from us, apart from Denny, me and Peter up there, not one of those people in that, that, that picture come from an intact family, a family where a mother and father raised their children. One of them is the granddaughter of a, of a prostitute. Her father died of, of, of AIDS. There's other complicated stories where, very typical of Peru, where you might think that you're the daughter of a, of, a, of, a, of a woman, but you're actually the grandchild of her because you're really the daughter of your sister. None of them were raised with their father in the, at home, uh, except for the one, one, of the, the, the one girl whose, whose father uh, died of HIV because he became a Christian and wound up living out a very admirable uh, life, a life that had a positive impact on his daughter. But each one of the people up there is smiling. Each one of them is a Christian. Each one of them has seen God change their lives, but they still carry tremendous weights and consequences from, from their life in the past, from the, the absence of having had this inheritance. In the next picture, what I'd like to do is I'd like to go through three aspects. It's kind of a tricky way of showing you what's been going on in Peru, and at the same time, as an illustration of the message that I really feel that uh, God's been teaching me and I'd like to share with you. That picture that was taken where we were all standing against the mountain backdrop was in Andahuaylas. 
And on the wireless is where that children's home is. A number of you know about it. A number of you have, uh, have supported it. Carol Posner uh, has a ministry, Friends of Peru, which supports this children's home. But all I want to mention about this children's home is, apart from it's a, uh, something that we would love to involve more people in, and we're becoming increasingly involved in it, and there's been some opportunities where public schools in Andahuaylas have opened up their doors to us and allowed us to have essentially a Bible school for a week in the public school, complete with praying, you know, praying the sinner's prayer with the children, giving them Bibles. And, uh, and, the, and the schools have asked us if we would come back again next year. But what I wanted to point out about this, about the inheritance, is that part of the reason why there's a children's home and why there's a need is, in fact, the fact that you have multiple generations of fathers, men, young men growing up in homes where they don't see a father who stays at home and is faithful to his wife, who stays at home and helps raise the children. And many of these homes are broken. Many of these homes suffer from alcoholism. Far beyond the impact of poverty is a poverty of spiritual poverty where these people are growing up. They don't even know how to take care of their children. The basics of loving children and learning how to work through difficulties in relationships are not there. And so many of these children live, although their parents are alive, maybe within a half an hour, within an hour of the town, some of them within 15 minutes of the home, don't have a home life that's healthy. And so there's a need for a children's home like this because of the lack of an inheritance, of a godly inheritance. Uh, the next picture the woman standing there in the white jacket holding her daughter, that's Lucy Romo. And in the next slide, I mentioned there about Chaclacayo. We've started a Bible study in Chaclacayo. Our desire is that this would grow into a church in Chaclacayo. And Lucy is really our first member of that church, a delightful person, tremendously difficult background that she came from but a person who has a lot of gifts, a, a passion. She's, she's so organized. You know, she, well, Denny and I are not particularly well organized. And having her as a friend is a marvelous thing because she can sometimes cover for our lack of organization and things like that. But she there is leading a, a class at one of the public schools in Andawailas. And Lucy, again, is an example of, of both the struggles a person has when they lack an inheritance that is a godly inheritance, and at the same time, the transformations that God can bring about um, in the short run. And then finally, the last slide, the person on my right up there is uh, Nestor Gutierrez. He's one of the elders of the church that we're working in right now, this Los Pilates church. And his story that I'm going to tell you about is a public story. And so I would like to talk a little bit in more detail about him to give you an example of what it's like when you think in terms of what happens when we don't provide an inheritance for our children, when we don't look out for their welfare spiritually. The next picture up close, I want you to see, I kind of got ahead of myself here. Lavinia is a church where we used to be, that, that, that couple up there is um, Cesar and Gabi, they're, the, uh, um, they're the, the pastor and his wife of the church where we um, were, have been working for almost 20 years. And then the next picture is a picture of Pilares. And I just want to mention Pilas. That's the pastoral couple up there. That's Dulio Andrade and his wife Pelusa. And that's the inside of the church. Pilates is a very, very tough neighborhood. Struggles with gangs and uh, um, drugs and all the typical things of very, very rough neighborhoods. 
In the afternoon, on the side street right near the church, young gangs come out. They have, uh, they're, they're quite obviously sometimes, they're obvious with showing that they have guns. And about a month or two ago, Denny has a women's Bible study Sunday afternoon there. And she wanted to buy some, uh, some soft drinks for the Bible study. And she said, oh, I, I need to go get some. And one of the members of the church was standing right there with his little son, who was about nine years old, but looks much smaller. He's about this big. And he said, well, there's a general store right around the corner, but, you know, you shouldn't go there at this time. I'll send my son. So there we are, two big adults, and the little boy like this runs around the corner to buy the soft drink because he belongs to the neighborhood, and we, we don't, and it would have been that dangerous for us. So there you are seeing the little tiny boy run around for your own safety and come back with the two big bottles of soft drinks. But nevertheless, um, what I'd like to talk about in the next picture as well, I want you to see the, uh, this picture up close of um, Nestor and I are called the identical twins because we look so much alike. And, uh, but he's a delightfully close friend. He's one of the elders of the church. And his story is so typical of almost all the men in this area and it shows some of the difficulties that happens when you don't have a goodly inheritance. His mother was about 14 years old and was working as a waitress in a restaurant with her mother. Her mother owned, well, didn't really own the restaurant, but was the, the person who ran the restaurant. And when she was 14 years old, there was a wealthy patron that would come into the restaurant fairly regularly, thought this young 14-year-old girl was attractive. And uh, the mother said to, to this young 14-year-old girl, that man is going to take you home with him. And so he took, takes her home. And she lives with him from 14 years old as his wife and has a number of children with him. A child is almost every year, but didn't marry. And then when she's about 21, this man leaves. And so Nesta really never knew his father. His father was gone. And in the meantime, this poor woman who's got all these children does the logical thing, the next man that comes along and offers to take care of the children, uh, becomes the father for the next couple of children in the family. And then, of course, he does the expected, and he leaves. And then the third man comes in. And then after the third man, the original father comes back in a little bit, and then he leaves. Nestor can identify who his father is, Physically, he could identify him in a lineup, but he doesn't know his father at all. And his father doesn't really know Nestor and really doesn't care very much. But Nestor's story, in terms of both what his mother's life was like and in terms of what his relationship to his father and his father's role in his life, is typical of every single man that I know in this church. Every single man. There isn't an exception. There are slight variations. There's a few men who have stayed at home for a while because it's the most comfortable place where they can go to sleep off a major hangover or um, excessive use of drugs or whatever. But in those cases, the men are so violent, so, so really vile with their children that you think, oh, it'd be nice if they would leave the house. Now, in this situation, what happens with that lack of an inheritance? When the men become Christians, everything in God's word is like a novelty. It's like, a, how do you apply it? And 
things like our discoveries. It's like a, that you should not beat your wife is like a discovery, but at the same time, you don't quite see how you would, how that would work out practically. Now, by God's grace, and this is where I think where, where I want to go, is that hopefully, at least the wise editor that I knew, most of you would find that an odd thought. You think, what do you mean? How does that work out practically not beating your wife? You think, it's obvious. You don't do it. And if somebody's doing it, they probably feel like, I hope nobody discovers this. I hope nobody discovers my secret. But the way we think about that, whether that seems like a noble way of thinking or not, reflects a tremendous heritage that you and I have from having had, at least to some extent, a godly heritage. And when your life is like thinking through, how would that work out practically that I would not beat my wife? What happens when she makes a mistake? What should I do then? What happens when she bothers me? Or the wife thinking, the way I need to keep my marriage together is by making my husband jealous. How can I make my husband jealous? You know, to keep my marriage together. And in many, many sad ways, as you work through Scripture and people discover these things, it's nevertheless a bit of a struggle to see how does it apply. Now, here I am standing here today, and I'm the beneficiary of a long godly heritage. And hopefully, I'm passing this heritage on to my children. There's a slide that goes with what I'm saying. I think it comes up here. Yeah, okay, here. So here I am standing today, and it's very easy for me sometimes to congratulate myself. Like, you know, what a good guy I am. Uh, I'm a... I'm a missionary, you know, if you're a missionary, you've got to be good, right? And, and I'm in the free church, and you've got to be good to be in the free church. And, and I have never beat my wife. And I'm not proud of that, but I mean, I don't, I'm not ashamed of it either. But I mean, my, my point is this. I, I, I said, I said, I never beat my wife. I think, I, hoping, I think, boy, he, you know, has that really been a struggle for him? I, it's not, I haven't really thought about it, you know, doing it. But the point is, it'd be, it'd be easy to think, you know, what a great guy I am that I, I don't beat my wife, and here I'm working with all these guys who beat their wives or, or, you know, take drugs, and, you know, I haven't, although I grew up in the 60s. So, I grew up in the 60s, and there's all sorts of things I haven't done, and so, you know, if, you know the good boys club, you know, I could raise my hand and be a member of that. But if I were to congratulate myself on that and say, oh, what a good guy you've been, I'm standing here as the beneficiary of generations of people who have been praying for me, who have made it a concern, a priority to teach their children how it was that they should live. And for me to not be that way would be a mystery. And yet at the same time, I think each one of us needs to kind of examine ourselves and to think, Okay, I've got this inheritance from my family. I have this inheritance in my church. What will I pass on tomorrow? Will I pass on to my children the heritage that I've received? Or will it end with me? Will the wonderful inheritance that I've received in my church be passed on? Will I be part of passing it on? Or will it end with me? 
And I don't mean to be like a, you know, kind of a bummer, pessimistic sort of person, but when you look at the statistics that there are, not just in the United States, but around the world, a lot of statistics that are an indication of family health and things like that, increasingly they're not much different outside of the church than inside of the church. The statistics about broken marriages, from some of the things that I've heard and seen, are about the same outside of the church and inside of the church. The percentage of children growing up inside the church that continue to find the church an important part of their life diminishes. And especially, I just recently heard that, especially in the the age from around 18 to 30 or whatever, in that area, that age when that range when you're making so many important life decisions, many, many, many people in that age have stepped away from their faith, have stepped away from the church, and are making those decisions, lifelong decisions, what jobs they'll have, who their spouse will be, at a time when they're not looking to God to help guide the decisions. And my concern is. When I look at myself, when I look at my friends in the church in Peru, and from what I read, I can't really speak with authority about the United States, but from what I read is that all of us are at a point where perhaps we might be dropping the baton. We might not be passing on to our children, passing on to the next generations in our church, the same inheritance that, inheritance that we've received from our, our parents. And if we don't, the concern for me is, will we perhaps pass on to our children a situation that increasingly looks like the situation that we face or that we see people facing in places like Pilates? Places where, as they look back generations and generations back, they don't see marriages where the couple is staying together. They don't see parents that work out difficulties in love. They don't see families that have God at their center and priority, prioritize God. And so here's where I want to go today with, in terms of thinking through what seems to me at least part of the thing in terms of looking at what kind of inheritance we give. And I want to use as my text what comes from when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? When one of the teachers of the law asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus answered him, the most important one is this. And then he recites the Shema. He says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is, Love your neighbor as yourself. And he said, there's no greater commandment than these two. Now, that's one that's very familiar to all of us. When he was saying about love your neighbor as yourself, he was not inventing a commandment. He was citing from Leviticus. And so if you look down there, the second part, love your neighbor as yourself. At that point, he's citing from Leviticus 19.18. And he was putting that together with the commandment about loving God. If you take a look at um, the other part, the Shema, so there's love your neighbor as yourself, which he said was 
the second most important commandment. He put those two together. And then the, the Shema, Hero Israel, that comes from Deuteronomy. And that's been the prayer of religious Jews from the time that it was given. Now, in the Shema, it's Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. That part we're often very familiar with wherever we are in the church. But that's the first part of the Shema. And the word Shema comes because in, in, in Hebrew, here um, is Shema. And so in, in Hebrew, it's Shema Yisrael. And so that's where the word Shema comes from. I'm, I'm sorry, I keep saying the Shema. But the, so this command, it's like the, the authoritative command. Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then it talks about loving God. Now, the Shema, the Hero Israel, this prayer comes with the second part. And so I have a slide up here that has from Deuteronomy 6 on. So the first part of the Shema is this part, the part that we're all familiar with, the part that Jesus recited in answer to what is the greatest commandment. The next slide shows the second part, and I want you to take a look at that. This is from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 through 9. This is what Jesus said. He said, These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them upon your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. And some of you are familiar with images of of, uh, ultra-conservative, ultra-Orthodox Jews who actually will, in fact, tie the phylacteries on their arms, on their foreheads, but I don't think God was talking about literally tying them on chain, but making them a part of your life, an intimate, a high-priority part of your life. And if you do, take a look at each one of these lines. First of all, that first line that says to, that these commandments that I give to you today are to be upon your hearts. Not just like an intellectual thing that I know over here, but something that sits there as an intimate part of me. And it says, impress these upon your children. Talk about them constantly. And it it outlines, just in case we're not sure how often we should be talking about this. Talk about when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Tying them as symbols on your hands. It's like, let people see that it's there. Not, I think, it's meant to be in some sort of religious, artificial way, but in a way that really people identify you as a believer in God who loves God with all his heart, soul, and mind. And I do this, I've begun to do this test for myself because I always thought, because this verse has been, this passage has been one of my favorites all through my life. And so I thought, because it's my favorite, surely it must be my priority. But as we began to deal sometimes with people who would talk about, you know, should I send my child to church or not? Well, no, he's 12 years old. I really want it to come from his heart. I don't want to, you know, force my child to go to church. Now, that seems on the surface like a good thing. And I think sometimes we even say that here in the United States as well. But how many of you, how many of us, have ever applied that same principle to education? Your child says, you know, I really don't like going to school. And you say, right, you're 12 years old, 
okay, I don't want you to force you to go to school. I want it to come from your heart, you know. And because I don't want you to be a phony. We only want you to go to school if it's really sincere. Do we say that? No. And why not? Because education is important. If you don't get an education, you can't get a job. If you can't get a job, you won't make money. If you don't make money, you're going to have a miserable life. But church, come, you know, you can take it or leave it. If you're really sincere about it, it does good things for you. But if you're not so sincere, but you see, functionally, you and I see education as a higher priority than God. Because you can live your life, apparently, successfully without God, but not without education. You think, but what about this talking all the time about God? You know, when people think I'm obsessive. Over the last week, and this is not just for your children, anybody in your family, any of your friends, how often you've talked about, I don't know, the economy, the new car, the furniture, the Vikings, the Florida Gators. You know, we talk about that and people don't say, oh, you're so sick. You know, you're always talking about the Florida. Well, maybe you do. I mean, I, I saw a few wives suddenly look at their husbands and think that. But, but in general, no. And if you're a guy and you're always talking about the Florida Gators, you can certainly find some other guy that thinks, yeah, he's my man or whatever. But, but it, or the Vikings or whoever. But the point is this, that there are a lot of things that we talk about a lot more than we talk about God. And God is a little bit like a seasoning that you don't want to use too much of, you know. It's like, hey, you talked about God this morning. That should be good for a while now. You know, let's talk about something else. But again, we show by what we talk about what's a priority for us. How often when we think in terms of what we really, really want for our brothers, our sisters... What we want to accomplish in life, does God come up is what the priority is. And so, when we think about God's commands, what I would like us to do, what I'd like myself to do more is this. This second part of the Shema. To think in terms of this is the thing I want to measure my life by. Are these commands really on my heart? Am I trying to impress them on my children or whoever else is in my family? Is this something that I think, you know, there's a lot of important things in life, but if there's one thing that I succeed with you, I want you to know God's commands. Do I talk about them all the time? Not because they have to punch the religious clock and say, oh, I need to talk more about God now but because it wells up out of me, like all the other things that are important to me, where I just kind of, the other things that are my passion bubble over. Or I have to restrain myself not to talk about them. Is it evident when I walk around that I love God? Again, you can't fake a sincere love. But does it look like as I make my decisions to the rest of the world, to my family, like, this is the way I, I make my decisions. When people see my household, does it look like this is the commandment that govern my household? And I think those are the things that we need to ask ourselves. When I look at the consequences of the people that I know and love, where it hasn't been applied, the consequences are tragic and they're sad. But how sad if I, knowing what I know now, 
Don't seek and ensure that this gets passed on to my children or within the churches that I serve in and things like that. And finally, what I just want to say is the very last thing. If you're like me, every time you get done thinking about these things, you're torn between, oh my goodness, I've got to go home and I've got to really, really, really work hard now again just being spiritual. And I've got to make a list of ten spiritual things I need to do. And uh, you know what? I bet you I'm going to just fail at this. And you kind of become discouraged because you think, I tried it, did it. You know, look at this. But I think the thing to remember is that command about loving God with our, all our heart, soul, mind, and strength has as well with it that good news. The fact that the fundamental thing that God said is this, that he knows that we fail. He knows that we will not love him the way that we're supposed to love him. And that for that reason, he sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross and to be resurrected again, to be our Lord and Savior. Not just to save us from our sins and our weaknesses, but to ensure us of a hope today that I can live in the power of God and tomorrow that someday I will see God face to face. And that puts a different context. That puts a different color on every one of the decisions I make today. And it means that when I think in terms of, oh my goodness, I failed in so many different ways to make God a priority, I don't have to go and kind of patch it up. I start out with saying, God, forgive me. And the heritage, the best heritage I can give to my children, the best example I can be to be, example I can be to be my, to my wife is to show that I, too, recognize that I'm a broken man before God and that I have made mistakes and that were it not for God, I could not stand and look and think there's a hope for tomorrow. But because there is a God, because it's a guaranteed thing, that every one of my mistakes has got a solution. Every one of my weaknesses has got a strength that God has that can lift me up. And that, of all the heritages, if my children can learn nothing else other than where to go, to seek to be saved, and be sure of the fact that that salvation is a sure thing, and that the promise of living in the Spirit today is a sure thing, and the assurance of seeing God one day face to face is a sure thing, if they learn nothing else other than that than me, if our churches ensure that no other, no, if, cannot ensure that anything else other than that message gets passed on, that is a life-changing, world-changing heritage. Let's pray. Almighty God and Father, thank you so very, very much for the inheritance that you have given us to know you, to be called your children, and to someday have the assurance that we will see you face to face. Lord, I pray that we would, as a church, as part of your body, make very, very certain that we pass on the inheritance that we perceive. That as members of families, that we pass on the inheritance that we've received. And if, Lord, we didn't receive an inheritance from our parents or from our church to be the beginning of a new inheritance that comes from you, thank you, Almighty God, for the assurance that we have in you. Amen.